Father, as we open your word to hear from you, we ask that what we know not teach us, and what we have not give us, and what we are not make us, for the sake of Jesus. Amen. All right, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'll be reading from the ESV. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is the word of the Lord. So James, James was the earthly half-brother of Jesus. He was the head of the church in Jerusalem and a very important figure in the early church. He was later known as James the Just because of his devotion to righteousness and to Jesus Christ himself. We actually have a record of his death by an early church historian called Hegesippus. James was said to have been stoned to death by the Pharisees in 62 AD for refusing not only to renounce Jesus, but for refusing to stop proclaiming that his earthly half-brother is the king of the universe. <laughs> That's James. And the occasion of this letter, and this is a letter that James wrote to these churches, to a group of churches, uh, the, the occasion of the letter is fairly clear from verse 1. He's writing to Christians, probably Jewish Christians, in the dispersion, or what's called the diaspora. Now, uh, that word, the dispersion or diaspora, it came to be uh, used of Jews who are in exile. And it was particularly, um, it came about after the Assyrian and Babylonian victories in the 8th and 6th centuries BC, right? When Israel and then Judah were carried off into captivity. The people who were carried off into captivity were the exiles. And as they, you know, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, some of them come back to Jerusalem, but most of them don't. So most of the ethnic Jews and religious Jews in the world actually live dispersed among the nations. And that's when the term the diaspora or the dispersion began coming into use. It's talking about people who are far from home and all the difficulties that they will encounter. So being a Christian in the dispersion generally meant that you're not only far from home, but that you're in religious and ethnic underdog. You're a minority. In fact, being a Christian Jew in the dispersion meant that you're an underdog within the underdogs. You're a minority of the minorities. 
and that brought a lot of challenges with it. You don't have the generational wealth, you know, to, to become financially and socially established that someone might who was originally from that area. And then many in the diaspora suffered a lot of persecution for their faith, and they had a lot of poverty. And there was always immense pressure on these scattered Jewish Christians to assimilate to the cultures and nations in which they lived. Pressure to abandon their ancient faith and the way of the Torah and follow along with whatever religion or whatever way of life was in vogue in their day. And I think you can already sense that there's a sense in which we are in the dispersion. That's a familiar thing for us as well. So there's actually two events implied in verse 1. Not, not directly stated, but two implied events in the greeting of the letter. And we've got to reckon with these. Both of these implied events run throughout the entirety of the letter of James under the surface, and they give shape and color to everything we're about to read. So it's important that we get this. Two events implied. So first, uh, look at how James introduces himself. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. A past event is implied. Let me ask you a question. If you have siblings, what would it take for you to shift your relationship from primarily being brother to sister or sister to brother or whatever to servant and Lord? Something happened. James's relationship to Jesus prior to the crucifixion was brother to brother. And in fact, he treated him kind of poorly and didn't really believe him a lot of the time, it seems. And then something historically happened. A past event happened to Jesus and to James that made it go from brother to brother to servant and Lord. Only the gospel can explain that. The suffering of Jesus, his humiliation and his exaltation, is the only thing which could completely upend that sibling reality and make it a reality of lordship and servanthood. James watched his brother die for James's sins. And then he saw him put in the ground, and then three days later, he was alive and then ascended into heaven, right? So only that sort of the humiliation, that suffering, and the exaltation, that lifting back up of Jesus is what could turn brother into Lord for James. That's the first implied event. The second implied event is in the second half of that verse. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So throughout the Old Testament, uh, whenever the people of God are in exile, when they're scattered in the nations, they're looking forward to a future event. They had promises from God to lean on as a people. So when they were scattered in the nations, that wasn't just their new normal. You know, my ethnic heritage, I've got family from Mexico and family from Scotland and family from England, but we're all here now and we're Americans, right? Uh, there's no homecoming ethnically for me in my mind. That wasn't the case for Jews. 
for Jews, they, they were you know, maybe living in Assyria or Macedonia or whatever, but they one day knew they would go home to where God was, to that place where God would dwell with his people. It was a promise. So they're looking forward to a future event, a homecoming. And while James doesn't specifically talk about the new heavens and the new earth or about the promised land, he does talk about the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus. And James is constantly looking forward to the perfection of God's people on that day when we get to go home. So these two implied events, the past event of the gospel and the future event of our glory in Christ, our homecoming, these are the anchor points of this letter. And nothing is really going to make sense and click together without those two things in mind. And James recognizes that being in the dispersion, being exiles scattered throughout the nations on their way home, one of the things that will most mark Jews in the dispersion or Christians in the dispersion is suffering. So that's why he launches straight into that topic, that theme that runs throughout the letter of James. What do you do with trials, hardship, suffering? So three main points for the three sections that we're studying today. Point number one is why we suffer. Point two is the key to suffering well. And three is how to talk about suffering. So let's dive in. Point number one, why we suffer. This is verses two to four. Let me read it again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, hardship is never neutral. When you encounter trials in your life, and James says when, not if, when you encounter trials, they do something to you. They will either move you toward God or away from God. Your faith will either strengthen or your faith will atrophy. But they don't do nothing. That's why James reframes our suffering. He calls it a test of our faith. And, and that holds true, by the way, for not just Christian persecution. So when I'm talking about suffering, when James is talking about trials, he is not merely talking about the sort of persecuted church things that we think about often when we hear the word suffering. James casts a very wide net. He says trials of various kinds. So I know a good number of the trials that some of you are facing because you've given me the honor and privilege of pastoring you. But whatever those trials are, just mentally take them and put them in the bucket of various kinds. Your difficult circumstances, this is not abstract, your actual suffering, your hardships, whether you think they're self-inflicted or not, belong in this verse, trials of various kinds. And right off the bat, James surprises us. He says, <clears throat> here's what you do with those trials. Count it as joy. <laughs> Count it all joy. It's actually pretty strong language, like sheer joy. Like saying suffering can be thrilling. Like, Come on, James. Really? 
really. Suffering can be a joyous occasion, but not in and of itself. That's why he includes the word count. You have to get your mind involved. When you face suffering, you've got to get your sanctified in Christ mental capacities engaged to say, hold on, what's really happening right now? You've got to count it up. You've got to do the math. You've got to reckon it to be joy. And that's why the logic of what James goes on to say is so crucial. We have to walk through this like an exercise. First, he says, okay, here's what we know about tests. They're trials of faith. And here's what trials of faith do for us. Tests of faith, excuse me. They produce steadfastness. That's what they do. They produce steadfastness. That word literally means remaining under. So, because I, I had to look this up and think, well, okay, I, I know what the word steadfast means in my mind, but what does this word really mean? It means to remain under. In other words, the image is you're carrying a big old burden on your shoulders. Steadfastness is the ability to just do it. It's the ability to not collapse. Keep walking. Bear the burden. Don't shrug it off or don't try to, you know, pass the burden off to someone else. Bear up under a heavy burden. That's what trials are like, like burdens. We know that. So we probably know that what we really need is that kind of steadfastness to get through it. Steadfastness is, is different than patience. Patience involves waiting. Steadfastness involves exertion, right? So um, think of the gym. You're waiting uh, for someone to get off the treadmill so you can have your, your turn. That's patience. You're holding a plank position. You know what I'm talking about? You're like in push-up pose, but you don't move. You hold that for three minutes. That's steadfastness. One is waiting. One is exertion. And it's the same with trials. We don't just wait them through. They take something out of us. It's like holding a plank. And James is saying, look, the only way you get better at holding a plank is by doing a plank. The only way you get better at getting through trials is by getting through trials. (laughs) There's no way out of it, friends. The testing of our faith produces in us the ability to bear up under the burdens. So don't despise suffering and hardship. You will grow in your ability to bear up under the burden by bearing up under the burden. That's by God's design. So the logic continues, verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect. Okay, so trials do something over time. Then all of a sudden we find that steadfastness does something over time. Let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. The idea is wholeness. Now, if you've ever baked bread, you know that allowing the yeast to do its work is critical to the bread turning out the way that you want it to. It has to be given time and the proper environment, right? The, the end goal is a perfectly risen loaf of bread with you know, crust and perfect crumb and all of that. But if we get impatient and we don't let the bread rise... It's not going to be any good. Or if we put it in the fridge and let it rise in the wrong temperature or whatever, we won't get the desired results. Bread bakers can't take shortcuts. 
Neither can Christians. We're not called to get out of suffering. We're called to get through suffering. The end goal, the desired result, uh, <laughs> it's that you'll rise. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> the, end goal, uh, the, the end goal is being perfect, whole, lacking nothing, a complete human. That's why we suffer. If you belong to God, God will send you suffering to make you into a glorious human. A person of utter wholeness, lacking no virtue. Can you even imagine? But the roads that God ordained for us to walk down, to get to that destination, are suffering and hardship. It's by God's design. Now, last week, I think it was last week, I was talking to a sister in Christ about how she's grown in her understanding of God and of the Bible. She was telling me something of that that journey where so many of us have experienced this God kicking up our spiritual mind into high gear. And she was discovering the sovereignty of God, his absolute power and absolute control over everything. The sovereignty of God. And she used a very unlikely phrase to my mind to describe that season. She said it was exhilarating. Have you ever thrilled at the sovereignty of God? The fact that God cares so much for you that he will take all of your suffering and hardship and bend them around on themselves to be for your good. The fact that he will take the very things that ought to break you and make them the things that will make you. <laughs> the sovereignty of God, his power and control rooted in his love for you. <laughs> That's how you can count it all joy. Yeah. We can thrill in the sovereignty of God in our suffering. So mentally working through this, even this very passage before God, that's how we can count it all joy when we encounter suffering. Applying gospel logic to our hardship, gospel logic to our trials, shows us that our trials have purpose. They are not meaningless. They are not random. They're doing something. It's eternally glorious. And even in the midst of our sweat and our tears in the suffering, we can actually know joy. Real joy. Not joy to the exclusion of sorrow. Joy in the midst of sorrow. It's much sweeter that way. God sends us suffering to perfect us, to make us whole. Point number two, the key to suffering well. This is verses five through eight. Notice how the word lack in verse 4 connects with the word lack in verse 5. It brings these two sections together. It's how we know, one way that we know, that James is still talking about the same thing. He's not rapidly switching gears from trials to wisdom and faith. He's talking about wisdom and faith in the context of trials. So let's read again, starting in verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. 
Now, wisdom, wisdom is more than just smarts. It's more than just Bible intelligence, whatever. It's, it's the, wisdom is the Holy Spirit-given faculty to discern and carry out the will of God. The Holy Spirit-given faculty to discern and carry out the will of God. So wisdom shows us that our trials are a test of faith. Wisdom helps us learn how to bear up under the burden. Wisdom teaches us to count it all joy because we see the end game. Wisdom teaches us how to live in light of the sovereignty of God, the God who takes our trials and uses them to make us whole. That's what wisdom does. So if we are going to get through trials well, not get out of suffering, but get through it and suffer well, we will need wisdom from God. That's what we need. The world's wisdom says, when you meet hard times, get out of them as quickly as you can, because what has to change is your circumstances, right? Godly wisdom says, when you meet hard times, get through them as steadfastly as you can. You don't need a change of circumstances. You need a change of you. I said change of you, but it sounded like change of view, didn't it? You think you need both, a perspective shift. So the world gives us techniques, and techniques can help us change our circumstances, but wisdom from God changes us. It makes us the sort of people who can bear up under the burdens. Wisdom gives us a new perspective. Wisdom shows us the end of the matter. It gives us purpose and meaning in our suffering. In other words, wisdom from God is the key to suffering well. So if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all and without reproach. James shows that our prayer for wisdom should be based on the character of God. He doesn't just say, ask God. He says, ask God, and then defines what he means or defines some characteristics of God for us to lean on when we ask him. God who gives generously to all without reproach. Our prayer for wisdom is based on the character of God. So here are the two things that James thinks that we need to know about God if we're going to ask for wisdom and get wisdom from him. Okay, the two things we need to know is first, God gives generously to all. Generously. We need to know, as Doug Moo said, God's single, undivided intent to give us the gifts that we need to please him. Think of the inverse. It would be cruel for God to say, draw me a circle and I'll give you a quarter, and him not to give us a crayon. Right? Wouldn't that be mean? He's not miserly like that. He actually intends, when he puts you in trials, to see you through them stronger than before, more whole than before. And if we don't believe that God wants to give us that wisdom, we won't even ask. Or if we do, it'll be a half-hearted, double-minded asking. Like we read in our call to worship this morning, God, being a faithful father, desires to give us what we need. He actually wants to. That's the character of God that we need to know, the first thing. He's actually generous. The, the, the inner disposition is generosity. Second thing that we need to know about God is that he gives generously to all without reproach. In other words, if we say, Father, I don't have the wisdom I need to get through this, He's not going to chide you. 
He's not going to scold you. He's not going to make you feel small. That would be mean. He won't make you feel small for lacking wisdom. Which makes him safe, doesn't it? So if you confess your need and ask for wisdom and then you start to feel shame and condemnation, that's not from your father. That's from your enemy. And it smells like smoke. And you can hold it up and compare it to the gospel. And you can tell that lie to go back where it came from. God does not make you feel small for lacking wisdom. He knows trials are hard. He knows your frame. If it's difficult for you, he doesn't say, buck up, buttercup. He says, I know. I know it is. I'm with you. Earlier, James called trials the testing of your faith. And I think you need to know that word testing, it implies smelting, not examinations. God is not presiding over a pass-fail exam. God is not waiting to flunk you. God thinks you're precious and is putting you through a fire to refine you. That's where the word comes from. So our faith-filled request for wisdom from God should be anchored in the character of God. What, what is God really like? Ask based on that. Let's keep reading verses 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay, this is not a name it and claim it verse. Asking in faith does not mean squeezing your eyes shut and believing really, really hard that what you ask for will happen. That is not what James is saying here. James is simply saying we need to do what he just said. Go to God on the basis of what we believe to be true about God. Treat him like what you know is true. That's how James understands faith, is putting what you believe into action. In other words, we're to have faith with no doubting in God's character, not in, in the idea that we're going to get exactly what we ask for. That is not the object of your faith. God is, right? The object of our faith or of our doubting is God. We can either believe that he's who he says he is, or we can doubt that he's who he says he is. But it really has nothing to do with you like, sincerely believing you're going to get the thing you're asking for. That's impersonal. That's not a relationship with the Creator, with the Father. So to ask him for wisdom while thinking to yourself, I don't know, God seems kind of stingy. He's probably not going to answer. That's doubting. James says it's being double-minded. So imagine a married man who takes his wife on a date because he wants to sweeten their marriage and grow it in warmth and intimacy. So they're over a, a great steak dinner somewhere at their favorite restaurant, and he can't stop thinking about his mistress. Is his marriage going to sweeten and grow warmer and more intimate? He's double-minded. That's being double-minded. Let's not do that to God. Think of Ananias and Sapphira, book of Acts. They intended to sell their property 
and give all the proceeds to the church to support the mission that was happening there. But they decided to hedge their bets and keep back some of the proceeds for themselves secretly. So they hedged their bets, and maybe they were thinking, you know, we want to see the church flourish. We believe in this, really. But just in case, you know, things might not go like we, we hope, so let's just keep a little nest egg over here, and uh, who knows how this will work out. It didn't go well for them. It's being double-minded. When we look back at the gospel, that past event, the humiliation and exaltation of Christ, we can know with certainty the character of God, that he gives generously to all without reproach. So don't hedge your bets with him. If God is who he says he is, you can lean into him all the way. You can put all your weight on him. All of it. And when we do that in prayer, that's the prayer of faith. That's what James is talking about. It's not magic. It's just treating God like he's real. So faith is the Holy Spirit-given faculty to know and lean on the character of God, which allows us to discern and carry out the will of God, which is wisdom. You see how they work together. So if you want to get through suffering well, not out of, but through, the key is wisdom. And it starts with knowing who God is and then treating him like that's true. That's what James is telling us. Leaning on him with all our weight. You know, when you do that, the crazy thing is, when you treat God like that, when you pray for wisdom and you pray in faith like that, you say amen. It turns out that was a very wise prayer. That is wisdom. It's pleasing to the Lord. So that's why we suffer, and that's the key to suffering. Now let's talk about how to talk about suffering. Okay? Verses 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So first James is talking about trials, and then he's talking about wisdom, and now he's talking about poverty and riches. But just like when he shifted to wisdom, poverty and riches still comes under the context of trials. Because how much money you have or how much money you don't have is one of the greatest tests of your faith. And if it's not yet, it will be. The word lowly means to be a person of little means or little significance. The simplest meaning is to be poor. But James is not saying that all poor people, that he's not telling all poor people that poverty is good. That's not his point. His point isn't good to be poor, bad to be rich. Okay, Paul has a lot to say about that elsewhere. That's called asceticism or something like it. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying there's something about being a Christian that lifts us up, us poor people, and gives us something to boast about, something to triumph in, to exult in. There's something about being poor in Christ. The way we talk about something reveals what we think about something. So James doesn't say that we have something to grumble about. He says we have something to boast about. 
That's surprising to me. Uh, If the way that we see suffering has changed, that it's sent from God to perfect us, and that he's willing to give us what we need to get through it well, then the way we talk about suffering has to change. So, lowly brothers and sisters, boast in your exaltation. Because though you might be of little significance in this world, you have been raised with Christ. Exalted. I mean, the church is the body of Christ, right? So, you are, if you're in Christ, a part of the body of the person who was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. You're part of that body. You are the body of Christ. So you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Your life is hid with Christ in God. That's your boast. You have been raised with Christ. doesn't matter how lowly you are here. I might not have much in this world, but my Lord suffered for me and was raised, and I with him. So I have everything because I have Christ. What if we talked about our suffering like that to each other? The way we talk to each other about what we're going through reveals what we think about what we're going through. That word boast is a community word. It's not something you just do to yourself. It affects the way that I talk to you and you talk to me and we all talk to each other. What do we boast in? Well, what about the rich? Well, look at what he says about wealth. He says it fades away. Flower the grass, sun comes up, wind blows, it's gone. Just like that. Worldly wealth is temporary. Spiritual wealth is forever. So whether you're a a rich Christian or a rich non-Christian, either way, your worldly wealth won't be impressive for long. So don't make that your boast. So what can the rich brother or sister boast in? Well, James says to boast in your humiliation. Because you followed Jesus who had everything and gave it up for you. Did I say boast in your exaltation? I meant humiliation. Because Jesus was humbled for you. Like Paul says in Philippians, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped after, but humbled himself. The richest person in the universe became basically a homeless guy in a backwoods part of town and then was beaten and murdered. And that's your Lord. The rich can boast in their humiliation because of the suffering of Christ. So I might have a lot of this world's goods, but it doesn't matter. It's all fading away. Here's the one thing I know. My Lord gave up everything for me, and he allowed me to be united to him and identify with him in his suffering, and he with me. Now, I wonder how many times a week we hear the, the, the question, how are you? I've asked a third of you that this morning. How are you? I've been asked that probably 20 times today. Well, what if we changed the way we answered? What if, what if instead of 
thinking about how we are on the basis of our circumstances. Am I going through a trial or not? Is life hard? Am I fine? Am I great? Am I okay? What if we thought, here's what the Lord is teaching me this week. What if we said, you know, I don't know what the Lord's doing, but this has been a really hard week, but I trust him with it. What if we talk to each other that way? Some of you do, and you're an encouragement to the rest of us. The way that we speak of our trials can be wise and lift up our brothers and sisters and help us all in this journey that we're on, or they can be, they can reflect what we really think about it. So if you're a follower of Jesus, two events mark and shape your life. The past event of the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus, and the future event of your homecoming, your perfection, your wholeness. For now, we live in between those two. We're exiles, dispersed in this world of trials on our way home. In the meantime, what can't we face into if God, sovereign God, is for us like this? What can't we face? Seriously. The things that Christians have been through and come out the other side singing. (laughs) You have... That same Jesus that stood with Paul stands with you. That same Jesus who martyrs sung to while facing lions sings over you. Come on. What can't we get through? God wants to make you into a whole, complete, astonishing man or woman, living on vibrantly into eternity. So if we can trust him with that future, let's trust him with our trials right now too. We can do it in Christ. As the band comes up, um, you know, I, I was thinking about um, the name James. I don't know if you know this. I know some of you know this because we've chatted about it. His name's not James. It's Jacob. Did you know that? His name in Greek, it's Jacobos, and it comes from Yaakov in Hebrew, which we translate as Jacob in English. The reason it's James in your English Bible is a convoluted series of translations from Latin to Italian to French to English. It's not wrong, but if you were to read it in the Greek, you'd be like, oh, it's Jacob. I had no idea. So his, his namesake is the patriarch Jacob from Genesis, the father of the 12 sons who became the tribes of Israel, the man who was renamed by God as Israel. If you remember the night that Jacob was renamed, he met, uh, he met God, and he wrestled with him all night long until God finally broke his thigh and gave him a new name, made him a new man. I don't know what you're going through exactly today, but it might be that you need a night of wrestling and a broken leg before you can limp gloriously into that sunrise as a new human.